So, as you remember, I asked Carlos Maza to explain the top three things he feels when watching news coverage of Trump. We covered point one. Please stop. <laughs> now, point two. The second feeling is, oh, come, come the F on. Um, just like feeling like I'm in uh, some surreal upside down version of the world where people who are very smart are talking about things in a way that's very stupid and neutral when they should not be. Um, and the third feeling is, oh, thank God, because there are like some bright spots of really good journalism. And uh, when you're feeling powerless, I think like the reason we care so much about the media is because at least you want the story about what's happening to you to be right. And so when you see a really good moment of journalism, you're like, oh, thank God. OK, yes, that's exactly how I see the world. That is what's happening. I am not crazy. And also there are people who have some influence and power who are describing the world. As it is, and that can be a very good feeling. I feel like so much of uh, people who are worried about Trump, I think, are putting a lot of stock in media because it's like it feels like the last real tangible check on power. And so when it does do well, you're like, okay, like a moment of relief in the, the nonstop firestorm that is the past few months. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. That it does feel like media is our last check on power because if Republicans control every level of our government from uh, state legislatures to Congress to courts to the presidency, it feels like it can feel, it can feel really hopeless. Like where do we go from here? Yeah. I think even if you don't see the media that way, if you think that people like citizens and public opposition is the last real check on power, it's like hard to see that working if media is not going well, because the way the citizen, the citizenry like understands that something bad is happening and gets pissed off is because they're getting accurate information about it. So when media fails in that sense, it's like, even if you think the media is useless, we do need it to understand what to be upset about and what not to be upset about and when to go vote and when to protest. Um, And so it's just like a very important choke point of any kind of public opposition towards uh, positions of power. How is your feeling about the possibility of citizen action changed since Trump has started shaping our media. Do you feel like we're still in a world where we can have an informed citizenry that goes and cares about things and protests them and votes on stuff? Or are you getting increasingly full of despair in this world of fake news? I've been hearing the term, we're in a post-truth world. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to wrap my brain around that or about what that means about what we should do in the world. Yeah. And I don't think I have a, a great answer. I'll say I am obviously super anxious and nervous about what happens when the office, the most powerful office in the government is using its platform to convince voters that they should not trust credible sources of information and just like have basic questions about whether or not there's an agreed upon, whether or not there's a shared reality that we can agree upon. Um, I think that that has existed long before Trump and a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I have have pointed this out that like, so much of Fox News's ascendancy is because they just created this like alternative version of the world that people really liked. And so if you wanted to live in that like upside down, you've had the option to for a while. The ascendancy of that like post-truth world has put a lot of pressure on journalists, mainstream journalists to act differently. The fact that stuff is so wild and bonkers means that journalists who have, I think, gotten away with kind of playing it middle of the road and trying to not take a position on issues they should be taking uh, positions on feel this pressure to inject some more reason into a debate that's consistently getting overwhelmed by bullshit. And I think that that's good. That that like we're 
the extremeness of the current situation is causing some journalists to be like, I have to change my behavior in response. And I think that behavior change is long overdue and actually very healthy. Um, so I can see it going both ways. And my constant feeling is just I'm nervous. So that's a, it's not a good or bad feeling. It's just, God, I hope we all make it, <laughs> which is, I feel probably the feeling for everyone right now. Um, well, let's talk about the first thing that you said you feel when you start reading the news, which is like, what the hell, how can this be happening? How do you feel like Donald Trump has has changed the way that news is written and changed the behavior of traditional journalists, people who work for big newspapers, big television stations? In a couple of ways. One is that he acts in a way that does just generate a lot more newsworthy, sensational stories. So part of it is his use of Twitter. Part of it is that he just like doesn't abide by typical standard procedure for doing things like announcing major shifts in foreign policy. That stuff happens like a lot more unexpectedly and ad hoc. So I think journalists are consistently playing um, are playing defense is the right word, but journalists are consistently operating from a place of reaction as opposed to I did this digging and so I know something is happening. Um, and that's not just true for journalists; that's true for like everybody who has an internet connection. That where a lot of it is reacting in real time to things that are just happening at a much faster pace. Um, I think Trump too has forced us has forced journalists to think about news in a more nuanced way. Because I think in the Obama presidency or in the Bush presidency, if either of them had tweeted or said any one thing that Trump tweets, it would undoubtedly be newsworthy because it would be so unusual. Everything that Trump tweets is so sensational. And like this fight with Meryl Streep is a really good example. Like if Obama did that, that would be super newsworthy and interesting. But in the Trump era, it happens so often, and there are so many sensational things going on, that journalists have to ask the second question, which is, not only is it interesting, is this important? Is this significant to my audience? Does this affect the material conditions of their lives? And if not, can I ignore it? And I think some news outlets have done a good job of answering that question, and some have not done a good job of answering that question. Some have just taken the, we'll treat everything equally and just deal with the news cycle as it hits us. And I think that screws over everyone. It screws over the reporters who are like constantly overworked and it screws over the audiences who like don't understand how to separate between real story and bullshit. Um, I think the other challenge that's happened is that another challenge that journalists face is that the, there's been, I think, an understanding that when the White House says stuff, there's at least an attempt to make it seem like it might be true. Like there's an attempt to not get caught lying um, or to say things that journalists could have could in good faith say this might be true. I don't think that's true for Trump and there's a bunch of urge or for Spicer or for this White House in general. There are a lot of examples of this White House saying things that are just like obviously blatantly this is obviously dumb and, and not true. And that's I think that poses a challenge to the way that reporters cover it. So one example of this is in headlines that typically if in an Obama White House or a Bush White House, the president said something, the headline would just be the president said this thing. This is newsworthy. Now, because the president is saying something that, that is very obviously false, if you were to run that same headline, that's very misleading. If you're running a headline that says Trump claims millions voted illegally, you need to actually insert this other part of that headline, which is like, by the way, that is bananas and bullshit. Um, there's this extra work that reporters have to do when they're doing record keeping about the White House, which is making sure that they're not peddling and repeating misinformation. And I think that that is something that they always should have done, but it is especially important in in the area of Trump. I think that dynamic where Trump says things that are patently untrue, that um, are just made up fiction, 
And then reporters have to respond to that by adding caveats to everything that he says when they're reporting on it. Plays into this conception that media is biased and that media is trying to undermine Trump all the time. I can imagine somebody reading a headline that says Trump claims millions voted illegally, no evidence for that, and saying, oh, look, what Trump is saying is true. The media is out to get him. Like, it's, 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 I just think that we're in this, this kind of bad cycle right now where everything we do plays into this idea that you can't trust the media. Yeah, and the, the flip side of that is that if you don't include that debunk, that audiences tend to believe the lie and internalize it as true just through like osmosis. They just start to think that that misinformation. So it's, it's, you can't just like not include the debunk because people start believing it then. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I do think that there are ways of debunking that are more effective than others. What you're, what you're alluding to is that for people who already support Trump, that debunks can actually have a, a backfire effect, that it, it causes them to become re-entrenched in the myth because they feel protective of their candidate or their president or they just don't want to believe the thing that they believe is wrong. And that's not just true of Trump supporters. Every human has this like natural bias against correction and debunking where they don't want to admit they made a mistake. Um, there are, there's been a lot of research about this, and there are ways to debunk more effectively and to kind of like deal with that part of human bias. bias. But that just hasn't been a concern that journalists, especially journalists working on deadlines, have had to take into consideration before. And I think that the extremeness and uniqueness of Trump is forcing journalists to have to be a lot more thoughtful about how they go about dealing with the misinformation and how they accommodate the people who believe in Trump and take his word very seriously and are suspicious of him without giving too much room to misinformation, how to kind of walk that line. And I think you're seeing some really creative and some really unsuccessful ways of kind of navigating those two, those two pressures. Yeah, it's totally true that the way to make a myth become a mainstream value is to just repeat it enough until yeah. people believe that it's true. So that's something that you do a lot in your video work is try and debunk common myths and misconceptions and explain why they're wrong in a really thoughtful way. So can you explain to me any, any strategies you've found or that you've seen in other people's work about actually successful ways to debunk myths and to counter fake news or false ideas when they're coming from somebody such as the president? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of research on this, and some of these I think are easier to do than others. Um, one of the things that's really powerful for debunking a myth um, that research shows is really effective is if you get somebody from the ideological camp of the person you're trying to convince to, to agree with you. So during that, during the debate about whether or not millions of people voted illegally, when news networks were interviewing Republican attorneys general or uh, state Republican leaders who were coming out and saying, this voter fraud thing is BS, I am in charge of this oversight and it doesn't happen, that was really effective because an audience is more likely to trust someone who they believe is similar to them and has their same ideological background, and they can't just dismiss as being, oh, you're the enemy, you're the opponent. So finding validators from the other side is a really useful tool. Um, not repeating it a million times, prioritizing the reality as opposed to the, the falsehood is a really simple and almost like dumb way of stopping a, a lie from being spread. Um, giving some explanation as to why a lie is being told is really, is really helpful. Giving the audience a motive or why someone would be dishonest to them is really important because the human brain needs a story to replace their original story. So if your original story is millions of people voted illegally, there's widespread voter fraud, just saying 
Trump lied is not enough of a story to replace that. You need to say Trump lied. He's basing this off a long-term conservative myth that has been used to promote voter ID laws that undermine Democratic voters. That makes a lot more sense, and that's easier for the brain to replace because it's not just there's this incorrect belief. It's there's in, there's this incorrect belief, and there's a reason why people believe it. I am not an idiot for believing this thing. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, I think there's a bunch that we can talk about this, but one thing that I found really effective and that I try to use in the work that I do is um, humor or uh, humanity and like vulnerability um, to calm down an audience's fears or anxieties they might have about you as a source of information. Um, a lot of things that I do in my videos are like making jokes um, or revealing personal information that has nothing to do with the argument, just like showing you that I'm a person. It's the reason that I want to start doing video work as opposed to written work is because there is a part of us as humans that like wants to like and trust other people. And the more that we can establish that on the outset that like I am a person too and I am living in the same country and trying to make the most sense of this, the more naturally we trust, we are, we are trusting each other. It's, it's just like how if you are really anxious about gay people, if you meet a gay person and talk to them about your favorite food for an hour, you're like naturally a lot more tolerant and open and warm with them because you see similarities. And so part of what makes satire so powerful and part of what makes, I think, like video work so powerful is that you can show the person you're talking to, like, look, I'm a person, I'm not a monster, I'm not trying to kill you, I'm not your enemy, um, I have a disagreement with you, here's my best argument for why I have this disagreement, um, do you kind of see where I'm coming from? And I think there's something about that like shared warmth that comes with talking and like being funny and having a side that I think satire does so well that I think can counteract or kind of like put on pause people's natural defensiveness when it comes to having information they believe debunked. Um, it's not an exact science, but I think that can be really helpful. Speaking of which, what what is your favorite food? Oh my God. Uh, I'm obsessed with the flavored almonds from Trader Joe's. I eat them until I get sick. I'm vegetarian, but their mesquite barbecue ones taste like meat, and I eat them until I like physically cannot talk to people. It's like my biggest vice. They like burn your tongue. <laughs> they burn my tongue, and the only solution is to put a whole bunch more of them in your mouth. And you're like, I've eaten 86 servings of almonds, and I have to go to work tomorrow, and I don't feel good. Uh, but no, I think <laughs> all all Trader Joe's almonds jokes aside, I think that's actually a really sweet and optimistic. That's the most sweet and optimistic message I've heard about media and Trump in a long time. That actually humans, the human desire to believe and trust people, which is so often exploited and manipulated uh, these days with our with um, Trump's statements and our media outlets, is something you can harness for the power of good. And that's something I think about a lot with storytelling. Like humans respond really strongly to stories. We don't respond as strongly to data. And one mistake I make, and I think a lot of reporters make, is just trying to hit people over the head with data to tell them why something is right or why something is wrong. And it doesn't work as well as telling a story about something that can tie into people's identity as well as their sense of the world. And so while that tendency to believe stories and kind of fudge over or forget data is really disturbing in a lot of ways, we can we can harness that power in some ways. Yeah, I, I think that... That's not like a feel-good, hippy-dippy, new-age thing. I think there's like there's actually a bunch of psychological research that does show that humans, like you said, prioritize storytelling, prioritize personalities, prioritize warmth over raw data. Um, and part of the one of the benefits of that like storytelling approach and the the humanity approach is that it does 
implicit in that is an understanding that I, as a speaker, know I might be wrong, and I, as a speaker, understand where you are coming from and don't think you're an idiot for believing that, that, there, that there's like a level of, of uh, equal vulnerability that comes with being a human when you talk to people about this stuff and tell stories that shows that it's almost like owning up to your to your perspective and bias makes you more trustworthy. Yeah, the, the biggest example of the sort of human-centered storytelling approach to reporting on Trump that, that you were just talking about is, of course, satire is... Is this is this for you the shining point of coverage in Trump? Is are these people who are actually doing the best job, even though they're not the like traditional reporters? It's more nuanced than I think. Those satirists are not reporters, so it's wrong to equate them with like someone like Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, who like spends time developing sources and can reveal information that most people don't have access to. That is the thing that is solely the within the purview of actual journalists. Um, and they do that very well. And I don't think satire is appropriate in those cases. Where satire is appropriate is explaining to audiences why any of that stuff matters. Why, how they should place all the news they're getting into their brains and how it affects them and why they should care about certain stories. So I'm more interested in comparing satirists, satirists to the hosts of CNN or the people who host morning talk shows. Um, and what satirists get that I think CNN does so badly is that to do effective storytelling and to do effective reporting, you need to be able to describe the world as it is and be able to say no to certain perspectives. I think CNN's model, especially during their primetime coverage, is there's a dispute happening. We will allow everyone to speak about this dispute who has an opinion and let the, let the audience decide. And that's actually very bad for the human brain. It doesn't encourage critical thinking. You're getting yelled at. You tend to just gravitate, gravitate towards the people who already agree with you. And also, you're not getting any useful information. And Another problem with CNN is that they give those people like 15 minutes of prep time to prepare for a segment. Most of them are not experts on the issue they're talking about. They're just like pundits. And so you're literally watching people who don't know what the hell they're talking about scream at each other for 10 minutes and then being like, commercial break. It's just not good for the brain. What satire does really well is that it doesn't entertain bullshit. It laughs at bullshit. And so you're spending less time focusing on arguments that are really dumb, talking points that are really dumb. Um, it's not concerned with theater. It's concerned with reality. And so satire dispenses with talking points very efficiently. It's like, this is, it, here's a talking point. It's either true or false, move on. It's not curious about why they said it this way. The kind of the theater that, that uh, political news coverage is typically concerned with. And what makes satire so effective in terms of educating viewers is that what sarcasm does to the brain or what jokes do to the brain is it forces you to think to get why the joke is funny. So um, an example is if I was, if I were to tell you, yeah, I had a great day today. You're, I'm actually forcing you to, to, to realize that I'm not telling you the truth, that I actually had a bad day. And that little process of being like, oh, that's not what you mean. You're telling a joke. Forces the brain to engage more critically in information. And that means that you process information better. It just like turns your brain on in a way that hearing people scream at each other on a panel does not. Um, and part of what I think news coverage does incorrectly is it talks about absurd shit with this really level tone. And that signals to the audience that you should take it kind of seriously, too. Like the Trump wiretapping thing. If you were just to say Trump says he was wiretapped uh, by Obama at Trump Tower, that's not true. That doesn't really communicate how silly this is, like how absurd it is in a way that a joke does. And so more than just the information that's being communicated, satire can really effectively communicate how you should feel about something, how silly you should you should see something as and how much weight you should give to an idea. And that's a really important part of news coverage that I think um, 
like the traditional straight news reporting kind of misses out on. And it's why I've had so much of that second feeling of watching CNN and being like, what are we talking about right now? This is bonkers. And not having anyone on TV who, who mirrors that for you. That was Carlos Maza. As you would expect, he is hilarious on Twitter at GayWonk. You can also watch his video series, Strike Through, about media criticism in the Trump era at Fox.com. Next up, Jen Posner talks with us about how reality TV show The Apprentice helped facilitate its star becoming our real-life president. 